This week, trial began uh, in the lawsuit brought by actor Johnny Depp against his ex-wife, actress Amber Heard, uh, for $50 million defamation suit. Depp uh, sued Heard for an op-ed that she wrote in the Washington Post in which she talked about being a domestic abuse um, victim. Uh, didn't mention his name specifically, but uh, but it was it was assumed that it was about Depp. Uh, she has sued him back for defamation, and the case is going to trial in Virginia, which is where the Washington Post is published. With us to discuss this case, not only this case, but defamation in general, is Dahlia Saper. She's the founder of Saper Law, which handles intellectual property, social media, defamation, trademark, copyright, entertainment, and business law. She's had a lot of headline-grabbing clients and cases, and you see her all over on national and local TV uh, as a media analyst. Uh, Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on this Sunday. Yes. Holiday Sunday. Yes, holiday. Lots of holidays today. You know what? Before we get started over the legalities, let's listen to a little clip uh, from the Johnny Depp trial. The evidence will show that the clear implication in Ms. Hurd's op-ed that you have in front of you was that she was the victim of domestic abuse perpetrated by Mr. Depp. The evidence will show that that was a lie and it remains a lie when it was repeated and republished two years later. Let's talk about that article for a minute. First of all, the article doesn't mention Depp by name. It never once contains his name in that article. It is not about Amber's relationship with Mr. Depp. There are no details of any abuse in that article. The article is about proposed legislation and strengthening of government laws and policies designed to protect abuse victims and people who report abuse. That's what the article's about. So these are from the opening statements of the trial. Dahlia, before we start talking about the legalities, uh, what do you make of this celebrity, he said, she said, that's being played out on national television? Well, what an interesting and explosive trial. It's got all the makings of a salacious Hollywood movie itself. What do I make of it? Well, I usually discourage my clients from filing defamation cases unless the stakes are really high. And in Johnny Depp's case, they're really high. He's lost major roles to the tune of millions of dollars. I think I read somewhere that he made $100 million for a single Pirates of the Caribbean uh, movie. Wow. So as soon as this post came out, he was he was dropped by Disney. He's been replaced in uh, other Harry Potter spinoff series. So for him, it is a big deal. And he needs to use this vehicle to clear his name. But it seems that maybe we never heard this before. We certainly I mean, how many people actually read the Washington Post op ed? You know, it was one day in the newspaper. So but now everybody knows these allegations. Has it not magnified the issue in some ways? I suppose that's just the nature of a defamation suit. Well, there, there's always the risk for that. But clearly, um, if you if you read more into the history of these two's relationship, she previously made these allegations in 2016. She retracted them and then published this article a few years later. So at first he tried to, you know, Johnny Depp said, well, I'll let it go. And then she upped the ante and then made herself this uh, advocate for all women and domestic and, you know, being a, yeah, an advocate for domestic violence victims. And, and it, as a result, it was, a, it was renewed backlash against him and lost roles and opportunities. 
Let's start with definitions. We have the words defamation, libel, and slander. Can you give our listeners some uh, quick legal um, definitions of these terms? Sure. So slander and libel are the, uh, they're both defamation. So slander is spoken defamation, libel is written defamation. It doesn't really matter how you spread a false statement. If you publish a false, verifiably false statement, whether it's written or spoken, you could get sued or be liable for defamation. And when you say false statement, a lot of people will call me up and they'll say, you know, someone called me a jerk online or they said, you know, that person doesn't do a good job. You know, is that defamation? Uh, well, this is what lawyers get paid lots of money to <laughs> to parse. Uh, defamation per se, it relates to allegations that are so offensive on their face because they accuse a person of a crime or that they are unable to perform their job duties or in some cases they have a loathsome communicable disease or they are unchaste. And that's kind of the common law categories of things that are so bad, we don't even need to state a specific dollar amount to know that it's harmful to one's reputation. But when the, within these subgroups, even statements that are on their face are uh, def- defamatory. For example, it's like he steals candy from babies, or I think that uh, abortion clinic, they, they murder people. In context, those statements might not be construed as actual statements of fact. So within the context of these cases, you first look at the statements on their face. Is it something that's verifiably true or false? Does that, if I accuse someone of having red hair, when in fact I can look at them and see they have blonde hair, that's something that's not, uh, that's easy to state, that's defamatory. For some reason, having red hair is a problem. Um, But saying, I think her red hair is hideous, is clearly a protected opinion, which the First Amendment affords all of us to have those opinions, and therefore would not be actionable. So before we take on any case, we have to look into the exact statements and the context of those statements before we think, you know, we talk about whether it's worthy of a long, protracted, expensive, uh, invasive lawsuit. And, you know, so for instance, you know, you look at a Yelp um, review of a restaurant, their food was really bad versus I got food poisoning from their shrimp because it was 10 days old. I mean, the first one is an opinion and I'm entitled to say I had a bad experience there. There's nothing factual about that. It's my opinion. But certainly if I didn't get food poisoning, or I didn't get it from the shrimp, or the shrimp wasn't 10 days old, those are all facts that can be determined one way or the other if they're true or false. Correct. Yeah, and that's a really good example. A lot of times we'll get small businesses who are upset about an uh, an unfavorable review, but they'll have to say, look, you know, whether or not they had a good time or the customer service was bad is not something we can definitively state is False, true or false. Let's uh, take a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking some more about the Johnny Depp trial, playing a couple of clips. Uh, And then I want to talk a little bit more about online defamation because it seems to be rampant. We're here with Dahlia Saper, the Saper Law Firm, and we'll be back in a minute. We're talking to Dahlia Saper, who's an attorney uh, who handles uh, all these kinds of cases, entertainment law, social media cases, defamation, trademark, copyright. Uh, And we're talking a little bit about the Johnny Depp trial. Now, Dahlia, um, the 
op-ed piece that Amber Heard, uh, Johnny Depp's ex-wife, wrote uh, did not mention Johnny Depp by name. Can you sue someone for defamation if they didn't, the person didn't say your name? The the short answer is absolutely. If there are enough clues in that op-ed or context around that op-ed, especially in this instance where we're dealing with high-profile public figures, celebrities, so that everyone reading it would readily realize who she's referring to, then it's not... uh, it's not a big deal that she doesn't name him specifically. We still know who she's talking about. If I said a a famous media mogul with a, with a talk show in Chicago was caught shoplifting, most people would probably understand that I'm ta- trying to allude to Oprah. So she would still have a cause of action if I made up that allegation. And you were just kidding about her. that, Dahlia. Just, I was just kidding about just that. Kidding. By way of example only. <laughs> Oprah, if you're listening, uh, it's nice that you're listening, but yeah, we, we yeah. really didn't mean that. Uh, so let's let's put yourself. I know you try these cases and you do these these these. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you're very involved in in very similar types of cases. Now Johnny Depp, you know, is being called. You know, he that she, he sexually abused her. He hit her. And he was on drugs and alcohol. And then there are allegations that Amber Heard was the person who was the aggressor, and she was the mm-hmm one who was hitting him. How do you spin this for the jury? How do you convince them that he didn't do these things? Because as we know, domestic violence generally doesn't happen with witnesses. How do you prove the absence of something? It's very, very difficult. And over the last few years, I would say that as a man bringing these cases, I would always warn them against doing so because we were in the Me Too movement. There was a culture of, um, you know, assuming you were guilty until proven innocent versus the opposite. And the way to win this is to have as much extrinsic evidence and testimony as possible. And you're lucky, depending on, when the, especially when the allegations of sexual assault and abuse, the judge may not allow previous instances to be referenced in the in the trial. I had a case where there was a, a video of the entire assault, the alleged assault, and we had it, and it was clear that, you know, in our opinion, it was clear that the women and the men were in a consensual situation. That the, it was an Uber driver and a passenger. Plaintiff claimed that the passenger was too inebriated to consent. Uh, we stated the opposite. We said, look, watch the tape. And in, in, our, in our situation, we were lucky we had a videotape. We had actual evidence to, to explain the context around what was happening. And then the real issue was how was she capable of consent. But a lot of times when there isn't that lovely piece of evidence, you're going to have to rely on on testimony, evidence, cameras, uh, police reports. In this case, they're bringing in therapists, marriage counselors, the party's assistants, friends, anyone who can talk about the nature of the relationship and whether they ever had any firsthand experience with either of them abusing the other. Hey, Andrew, let's play a little clip. There's a, a Johnny Depp's very good friend, Isaac Baruch, uh, was on the stand and was asked about the abuse. Let's listen, and then we're going to play a little bit on the cross-examination. So many people are, have been affected by this malicious lie that she started and she created. It's not... Uh, It's not fair. It's not right what what she did and what happened for so many people to get affected from this. It's 
it's insane. And now let's hear Amber Heard's lawyer cross-examining uh, the same witness. Do you recall Mr. Depp ever telling you that he hoped that Amber Heard's rotting corpse is decomposing in the trunk of a Honda Civic? Objection. I'll allow it. Yeah. You can answer the question, sir. Yeah, that, well, I say, yeah, I'm seeing it here. So obviously, yeah, it was said. Okay, so we have we have bad words coming from Johnny Depp. That doesn't mean that he mm-hmm. uh, was a domestic uh, violence perpetrator. But, you know, how, again, you know, these things are just so difficult. How important is motive here? Because to me, if I were sitting on the jury, I'd want to know why would Amber Heard, what would be on her agenda to make this up? Um, obviously, Donnie Depp has a real incentive to to defend this and, and say he didn't do it, even if he did it. But is how important do you think motive is here? I think motive is very important in lends context to the reason for the statements, the timing of the statements, and the medium for the statements. In this case, the complaint alleges that she published this in advance of a movie that she was in being released. I think it was Aquaman. She liked the limelight. It was the Me Too movement. She wanted to get publicity. And so it it made sense for her to be important and use this platform as her way of being relevant. I had a case, again, another one where we defended the, um, the male who was accused of sexual assault and we ultimately settled it, but what we were able to discover was that she was having an affair with our client. Her husband found out, so she fabricated the, you know, the, she, she claimed that the relationship was not consensual because she didn't want to get in trouble with her husband and be outed that she was engaged in an affair. And that and that uh, that can prove your case right then. We have literally one minute, but I want to talk about online defamation. Someone says something about you online, whether it's your business or you personally. What is your quick recommendation for people and what to do? It really depends on the nature of the statement. A lot of the times I say it's a lot more effective and uh, powerful to have real-time responses and allies uh, contest the false statement or the bad review. But if the statements are, hey, you know, I I represent a doctor who was accused of killing his patients and utilizing, you know, and using cocaine prior to operations. Well, that's an instance where, you know, I don't think any matter of good press could really dilute the the impact of such a terrible false allegation. But if it's more, um, again, we have 30 seconds, I'd say it's a case-by-case scenario. More often than not, it's best to approach these things with a public relations effort, with responding in real time. But if it's truly damaging and that damage can be felt long term, that's when a defamation case makes sense. Dahlia Saper, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. I'll give out your contact information on the other side. We'll be taking your legal calls. You're listening to The Karen Conti Show.